Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we talk with editor of the New York Times book review, Gilbert Cruz, about what he and his team determined to be the 10 best books of 2023. Just five works of fiction and five works of nonfiction are selected from more than 1,500 that are reviewed by the Times every year. We'll learn which books made the cut and why, and how Times staff members determine and defend the books that should make the list. So I, I loved this book. I couldn't put it down when I started reading it. I recommended it to everyone, including an attendant who was helping me when I broke my phone. <laughs> we'll also hear about your favorite reads of 2023. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The debate among New York Times book review staff of what to name the 10 most exceptional books of the year begins as early as spring. Quote, things can get heated. We spar, we persuade, and above all, we agonize until the very end when we vote and arrive at 10 books. Editor of the Times Book Review, Gilbert Cruz, is here to tell us, after all that agonizing, which standout books made 2023's list. And we want to hear from you. What book did you read and love this year that you want to recommend to listeners? Tell us why, and no spoilers, please. Or feel free to ask Gilbert Cruz how he and the team at the Times Book Review get to 10 from so many potential books. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Email address forum at kqed.org or find us on our social channels channels like Instagram or our digital community on Discord. We're at KQED Forum. Gilbert Cruz, welcome to Forum. It's uh, wonderful to be here. So I definitely want to get to that voting process that we were just hearing about in that intro I read. But first, I want to know about a book on the list, a book that you're super excited to tell us about, maybe in the fiction category. Absolutely. So I will talk about a book uh, called The Bee Sting. It's by an Irish author named Paul Murray. Uh, and I try to read uh, all of or most of all of the books that end up on our <laughs> top 10 list. And this was the last book that I read. And it is Ooh. not short. It's about 600 words. And so I just 600 words or 600 pages? <laughs> 600 pages. I remember approaching these 600 pages and saying, I don't know if I have it in me, um, but <laughs> as soon as I started, I, I, the cliche alert, I just, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't stop. Every time I put it down, I wanted to pick it back up. So what the book is about is about four members of a family in a, in an Irish town right around the time of the 2008 financial crisis. And they've been 
riding high on the hog for a while. The dad has inherited uh, a formerly successful uh, auto shop business, and now they're hitting tough times. And and the book is broken up into um, point of view chapters from each of these characters. There's the mother, there's the father, there's a daughter who's about to go to university, uh, and a and a preteen son, I believe. And and you just sort of go deep into all of their lives and feelings and internal thoughts and emotions. Uh, it's funny, it's sad, it's dramatic, it's a little tragic. Uh, mm. And just every time I put it down, I wanted to know what this family was doing. Oh, interesting. I actually want to play a cut of uh, another books editor, Jumana Khatib, who was also somebody who really liked this book. They were on the Book Review podcast, and in a recent episode of The Times, they described sort of similarly why the bee sting stayed with them. I missed those characters when they were gone. Like when Molly Bloom's radio hour was over, I missed Imelda. I missed all, I missed the kids. So when you were talking about how they go deep, you really get into the feelings of the family members. Is that what made this book stand out? Because there are a lot of books about family saga. I mean, you know, Paul Murray, there's something about the way that um, he he writes what may seem to anyone just like very uh, run-of-the-mill events in the life of any person uh, living in the 21st century that, that just propels you forward. It's not... Um, uh, particularly complex writing, but it is sort of lyrical uh, and it is sort of uh, beautiful. I mean, there's a way also in which it's not a particularly heavily plotted book, but as you proceed through all of these sections, you know, events that you're learning about through the perspective of one character are given a different interpretation as you see it uh, from, you know, one of the other family members. And it just continues to build and build and build into an ending that I. Uh, I certainly did not see coming. I still don't know what I think about it, but uh, I'm very happy I read it. Oh, nice, nice. So this idea of a book that you can't get out of your head, it's something that so many of the editors reference when they're talking about the books that they love. I'm sure it's not like an official or formal criteria, but is that sort of a need for you? Like that had better be there. It better be something you can't shake. Absolutely. Look, there are a lot of books um, published in America every year and 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 we review a lot of them and we look at a lot of them and and many of them are are good many of them are quite good but then there is that that level of book where you know that not only are you um going to be thinking about it for a while but you're going to want to tell other people about it and and that's just not as common maybe as one would think so tell me about a book like that on the nonfiction side or a standout book that you really loved Sure. So this is uh, another book I've been I've uh, been talking about a bunch because I loved it so much. It's a book called Fireweather. It's by John Valiant. Uh, it's a piece of nonfiction, investigative journalism, and it's ostensibly about uh, a giant wildfire that happened in Canada in 2016 in a town called Fort McMurray. So Fort McMurray is a boom town that arose uh, centered around the extraction of uh, of tar sands, sort of bitumen from the ground and this is a way uh in in which this part of canada uh, alberta has um just just made so much money right so it's 2016 you have this town that has arisen uh and made a giant industry around taking stuff out of the ground oil to burn and then a giant wildfire hits the town and 90,000 or so people have to evacuate you know within a day or something. And wow. so what the author John Valiant does is he gives you 
what you would expect for uh, from a deeply reported uh, story, which is a beat-by-beat beat account of this fire and how it moves through the town. But he also intertwines that with um, a history of sort of like a oil and, and, and uh, bitumen extraction in North America, as well as a history of climate change and climate change science. And by putting all three of those together, you not only get an account of an event, which is something that you could read in many books and many magazines, but uh, you feel like you are also getting a sense of of how um, climate change has come to be accepted as what it is and what the future of it will be. You know, the great irony of this book uh, and one of the, the things that he threads so uh, deftly is that the industry that Fort McMurray uh, became rich on is also the industry that sort of led to this wildfire that swept through the town. Mm. You know, one of the lines that really jumped out at me in the description of this book in the piece that puts out the 10 best is this line that says, the real protagonist here is the fire itself, an unruly and terrifying force with insatiable appetites. And I understand that you interviewed John Valiant uh, on the podcast, and I actually want to play a little clip from that. And as I as I tried to grapple with really the enormity of the Fort McMurray fire, it went on for so long, it impacted so many people. There was just no one person who captured it all. But there was this dynamic energy moving through the story all the time, and that was fire itself. And so fire is kind of, for me, was kind of this ultimate challenge to try to, to experience the world through that chemical reaction. We hear a lot about books where a location or a thing like maybe like fire can play the role of a character. But it sounds like for you or your team that Valiant did this very successfully. Absolutely. You know, it's the equivalent of you watch a movie and everyone says uh, New York City is, you know, it's like New York City is a character. And and that's what it was here. And, and when I spoke to, to John you know, his fear when he embarked on this project was, I don't know if I'm going to have a through-line character, which is often what you need in a long piece of narrative nonfiction, a person that the reader can attach themselves to in order to to thread their way throughout, uh, you know, a lot of new concepts in history. But John, uh, John Valiant, has such an incredible uh, mastery of of metaphor and analogy. Again, there's there's something in the language here. Language is very important to us. Uh, when we're talking about best books of the year, that just um, it, it's it anthropomorphizes. Is yeah. that how you say that word? Fire yeah. just it it makes fire into this thing that seems alive, and he he doesn't shy from it. He writes in the book about how even to some of the people on the ground, um, it seemed as if they were dealing with a living entity, something that bypassed this section of town and then thought twice and decided to turn around and come back because it had missed houses or something of that sort. It's it's quite an impre- impressive thing that he does. We're talking with New York Times Book Review editor Gilbert Cruz. Gilbert, is there any campaigning on the part of authors or, or maybe more likely their publishers to be included in these New York Times best of lists, whether it be 10 or 100? There luckily is not. We've been doing this for a while, and I, I think publishers and editors and agents and authors uh, know at this point that uh, any any sort of campaign, whatever that would even look like, uh, would, would maybe work against them more than it would work in their favor. This is not like the Oscars. It's not like the Golden Globes. People are not putting four-year consideration ads out in the New York Times book review. Uh, it really is 
uh, a process that is that is you know um, limited to uh, this group of editors in the department who I think read more than almost anyone else else out there in any given year. So they don't even try, or they do try, but there's like this wall where you're all protected from getting any of this stuff that you were describing yeah. related to the Golden Globes or something. You know, we'll get an email saying, <laughs> uh, hope you keep this book in mind, but it's it's not, it's, you know, they're not very aggressive, very targeted, uh, very targeted emails. It, it really wouldn't serve uh, any purpose. And so uh, I think everyone has realized that over time. Oh, yeah. Well, we've got listeners telling about the books on their mind. This listener on Discord writes, putting in a good word for The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. Did you read that one, Gilbert? So I did not get an opportunity to read this one, although it was discussed uh, in, in some of our meetings. Mm. Um, this was a book that... Um, has has been around a lot this year. So James McBride, amazing author. His last book, Deacon King Kong, was one of our 10 best books the year it was published. His book, The Good Lord Bird, which came out in 2013, it won the National Book Award. It was made into a big series starring Ethan Hawke as the abolitionist John Brown. And this new book, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, uh, was Barnes & Noble's book of the year and Amazon's book of the year. And it was on a ton of of best of list. It was on our hundred notable books of the year. Uh, a lot of people that I know have read this book really, really love it because James McBride is such a big hearted, open hearted, uh, author. It's, it's sort of a, a historical novel, um, set in, in the mid 20th century in a town called Pottstown, PA, uh, in a neighborhood of that town called Chicken Hill, which is historically where uh, African-Americans and immigrant Jewish families sort of lived and, and intermingled with each other. There's a murder mystery type element, but that's not really the, the driving part of the plot. It's, it's just about this community. Mm, well, we are hearing about the New York Times Book Review 10 Best of the Year and also about your favorite book of the year. Tell us at 866-733-6786 at our email address forum at kqed.org or post it on our social channels. We've got Gilbert Cruz, editor of the New York Times Book Review with us, and we'll have more with him and with you after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So many exceptional books pass across the desks of New York Times Book Review staff, and we're learning about the select few that made their list of the 10 best books of 2023. We're learning about it from the editor of the Times Book Review, Gilbert Cruz, and we're learning from you, our listeners. Tell us what was your favorite book of the year. What did you love about it? What about it will stay with you? Also, do you use the New York Times Book Review to select a read? What questions do you have for Gilbert about the selection process or the inner workings of the New York Times book review. You can email forum at kqed.org, post on X Twitter, Instagram, or our digital community on Discord. You can call us at 866-733-6786. This listener writes, Time's mouth by Eden Lepucky. Her ability to conjure all the different Californias into being is amazing. 90s LA, 70s San Francisco, the fraught communes and the Santa Cruz Redwoods. It's a very creepy, oozy spooky book where dread lurks throughout, but there's also beauty and love and family. And what might even qualify as a happy ending, if you liked Emma Straub's This Time Tomorrow, you might like Time's Mouth. If you're also into complicated women and what happens when an idealistic, when idealistic utopias sour and rust. Another listener on Discord writes, Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton is so good. It's tricky, too, because you think starting off is going to be slow pace, and then it just ratchets up and up and up. Highly recommend both both as an expensive experience of incredible, incredibly good craft, and because the ideas about conservation and environment and money, always money, addressed in it, are powerful, too. Burnham Wood. Do you know that one? Gilbert? I did read that one. I, I had the wonderful opportunity to uh, interview the author, Eleanor Catton, on our, our podcast. Uh, and, and several of our staff critics here really love that book. It is, um, I think it was Dwight Garner, maybe he said it was it was possibly one of his top novels of, of this past year. Um, it's essentially a book that is set in uh, New Zealand. Uh, and there is a group of, of idealistic um, the author calls them guerrilla gardeners. These are people that find unused plots of land um, and plant gardens or, or plant food there uh, in an attempt to sort of, uh, you know, take advantage of, 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 of things that are not being used. And they run into a billionaire, an American billionaire, one of the richest men in the world, who is um, also trying to find a plot of land that is not being used, but but the reasons that he is using it are pretty nefarious. And the book is about the clash between this group of idealistic people and this sort of cynical rich man. Um, it, it moves very quickly. This is a very, it's a wonderful book that has a, a wry sense of humor, um, but it's also very plot driven. And it was a, a very exciting read. Well, I want to ask you about another book on the list. And this one is Eastbound by... Mylise de Carangal, if I'm saying Mylise's name yes. correctly. Um, so this was, we read a lot of long books during the year, you know, 800-page uh, biographies and stuff like that. And and this was a, a slim little book. It's about 120 pages. It was published in France in 2012, but it was only out this year in, in an English translation. So it qualified for... Uh, our list. And it's the story of a 20-year-old transcript in the Russian army. He is on the Trans-Siberian Railway, very famous railroad, um, and he is, as the title says, he's going eastbound. He's headed east where he does not know. Uh, he doesn't want to fight. Uh, also on the train is a French woman. She doesn't speak Russian. She's sort of fleeing a, a relationship that went sour. And the soldier-to-be and this woman sort of cross paths, and we get this very 
very compressed, very suspenseful, very propulsive story. Uh, it takes place on a train. It's claustrophobic. You could probably read it in one or two sittings. And even though it was written more than a decade ago, um, let me take a step back. We don't pick books based on does it feel um, currently relevant, right? So the fact that this book is about a Russian soldier um, was not necessarily a reason we picked it. But it's hard not to feel when you're reading this book as if there's there's something that the book is trying to say about like the Russian martial nature. Um, uh. It was it was a late-breaking book, and, and once everyone got their hands on it, uh, everyone was in favor. I see. Right. So the book was written, as you say, like a decade ago, but it could work as a story about today's Russian war on Ukraine, for example. But you're saying it does not, you are not necessarily trying to choose something that is reflective of the current moment or has something to say about the current moment. But but do you construct this list in a way to achieve some kind of subject matter balance or variety or aim for diversity? Can't we do not? We do not, huh. and I don't think it would be uh, something that any of us would feel comfortable doing. And I'll explain why. So, so we put out two lists at the end of the year. We put out our hundred notables, and we put out our top ten. And the hundred notables is something where it's a little bit more in the line of what you're saying. Editors can recommend the books that they are most passionate about. Even a hundred is a small percentage of the books that are published in in English in America every year. But we really, you know, try between all of our editors and writers to get uh, a sense of um, subject diversity and, and, and other types of diversity. With, with top 10, you just, you can't do it. 10 is so few. It's such a small number. If you were trying to achieve a sense of balance with all the different ways that you could plot on a chart, you know, do we have a type of nonfiction book about this? Do we have a fiction book written by this type of person? It just... It wouldn't, and you're trying to argue for what you consider to be quality at the same time, it would just be impossible. I, I see. So, but that said, if there were like five books that were all about like the same thing or said the same time or place, you'd be okay with that being on a list. Of I, I think books. the process, which I'm happy to explain, would, would we never even allow I think that. With, yeah. without being uh, explicit <laughs> about it, I think the editors in the room in these meetings every week would be like, I don't know. Are we going to have five historical biographies on here? You know, that would be, uh, I don't think we would be happy with that list at all. Well, here's a question from a listener who writes, if there's no promotion by publishers and with all the books written each year, how is it that the same few books appear on all the best of the year lists? Is that true? What do you think about that person's observation? Uh, it's a good observation. So, you know, I can say with all honesty, there is no uh, promotion when it comes to the process. What there is, is um, promotion throughout the year, right? So we have a handful of major publishers uh, in America, large publishers, several of which are owned by, you know, foreign companies, and and places like uh, Random House and Simon and Schuster and Harper Collins, they put out books and they put um, a ton of marketing muscle behind those books, right? So so just like with movies and TV, you know, you're you're going to see quote big books. Um, it just so happens that some of these quote big books are actually written by good authors. I mean, The Fraud by Zadie Smith is a book that I believe that um, publisher put a lot of muscle behind in terms of promotion, in terms of marketing. It's a, a someone that we are familiar with, someone that we have seen before, someone whose books we have liked in the past. 
But it's also Zadie Smith, who's an amazing <laughs> author. And so, uh, you know, I think we also have to take into account that um, uh, the good authors are the ones that uh, we're seeing on these lists because everyone, uh, I think, across the industry, whether it's us or our competitors like The Post or The Wall Street Journal or The Atlantic or The New Yorker, um, thinks are good. I mean, we're not... We're not all conferring across publications like this is the one we need to do. These are good books. Yeah. Well, you mentioned The Fraud by Zadie Smith. You want to talk about that and why it made this year's list of 10 best? Sure thing. So uh, I, I do think Zadie Smith is, you know, one of her generation's great novelists. And this is her first historical novel. You know, she's British, and, and I feel like it'd be very easy for um, uh, a British person, English person, to write a historical novel and 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 just be fine with it. But she she delayed that as as long as possible. Um, so this is it's set in Victorian London. It is about uh, a Scottish housekeeper. Uh, it's about the cousin that she lives with, who himself is a, a writer who actually was famous in real life at the time. It's also about this real life court case that took place uh in england which is which is one of the ways that the the book gets its title the fraud so this court case is um there was a a um, sort of a a man named sir roger titchborn he was the inheritor of a great title and then he was lost at sea and he was considered dead at sea years later some guy who looks nothing like sir roger titchborn some guy who talks nothing like sir roger titchborn some guy who clearly is not of noble blood and has never had money, comes in and says, no, 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 I'm Sir Roger Titchborn. I'm going to sue in order to get this money that rightly belongs to me. And even though it's clear to everyone that he is a fraud, he's one of the frauds that the title talks about, um, this trial captures the imagination of a segment of the of the English public. And, and they start to believe him because he is inveighing against the elite and they just want to believe that uh, you know, in their very class, um, uh, uh, class divided structure, that this is possible. So there are these amazing modern day parallels to political populism, the passions that can be stirred up in a citizenry by 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 someone who is shameless. Um, but it's also a lot about literature. Charles Dickens is a character in it. There are a lot of delights to be found uh, in this book. Wow, amazing! And uh, I I'm wondering, is this a book that required? little debate when it came to whether it should be included on the 10 best list. Because as was described in that piece about the list, there can be some things can get heated, there can be some sparring and so on. Did this one require that? Uh, I think that there are few books that don't have some sort of debate uh, in the room. Hmm. I, I'm, do you, do you, should I go into how we actually do this? I, I think would love, yes, because I would love to know... You know what that's like. How you navigate, you know, those strong feelings, and go about the process of deciding and voting. Sure. So, um, as you said at the top of the show, this is a process that starts in 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 the spring, and um, we have a group of editors here. We call them preview editors, and their job is every month to look at dozens and dozens of books, and and they read uh, the first fifty, seventy five, a hundred pages to decide whether or not we're going to review them. Hmm. If that actually had to read the full book of every book that we reviewed. Um, we would review, I don't know, 300 books a year as opposed to 1,500 books. It's just not humanly, physically possible. But we read into a book, is what we call it, in order to get a sense of, of uh, whether or not we think it should be reviewed and then who should review it. So over the course of the year, 
the process is an editor has to nominate a book and then someone else has to second that nomination. And we meet regularly. We meet monthly. And in the fall, we meet weekly for several hours Mm. um, to talk about the books that are nominated. Before the meeting, uh, editors are required to read all of or most of the book that we will be discussing. It wouldn't be fair otherwise. Uh, If you haven't read the book because you've been busy with your actual job, that's fine. But you cannot talk about the book. And then we hash it out. Someone, the person that nominated it... Um, says a statement in support. Uh, Some people write it down. Some people freelance it, why I think this book is great, why it spoke to me, why I think it is deserving of the title of one of our 10 best books of the year. And then we go around. And often how it goes is you'll have one or two people that speak in support of the book. And then, you know, the one or two people that did not like the book are are waiting, waiting, waiting. They don't want to necessarily come out right at the beginning to talk smack about the book. But eventually they will come out and they will say, you know, this book seemed forced to me. This The main character was completely unrealistic. I feel if it's a nonfiction book, I've read this before. The sentences mm-hmm. are clumsy. This part was confusing. And then it, you know, and then it turns into a discussion and a debate. The closer we get to the end of our process, which ends at the end of October, in order to, in order for us to, to publish this list right after Thanksgiving, the closer it gets, the more heated the discussions and, and debates get. And then there are a series of votes. And there's one final vote, and there are several books that did not make the list that were one or two votes away that are quite good and and are on other wow. lists. Yeah, and the vote is entirely anonymous. It used to be um, anonymous, and I, I took over this job a year and a half ago, and, and I've started to do our final votes um, in, in open court, as they really? say. Really? Why? I, I want it to be. Because at... Th- when you get to the end of the process, there's no more lobbying, right? The, I, I'm talking about like the final day. There's mm. no, we're not gonna we're not gonna leave the room and have uh, people twisting arms. It is these are the final votes, and we're gonna see who is in favor of what and who is not in favor of what. And At so, that point, yeah, y- you know, there's 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 no more lobbying to be done. I see. And sorry, remind me one more time how many people are in that room? About uh, 12, 14. It's 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 somewhere about a dozen people. Wow. Um, I actually want to play a clip of one of the editors talking about why they loved a book. This is a book called Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajebrenia. Um, Just to give people a feel for who is in the room, who are the people who are weighing in. This is MJ Franklin. Why I love it is because it's combining two things. It's combining this incredibly thoughtful social commentary with what is essentially an action blockbuster. And this book is fast-paced, high-octane. The fight scenes are vivid and brutal, but there's a depth and an accessibility to this title that I think makes it incredible. Once again, that was Times editor MJ Franklin. So I don't know if you want to say anything about who MJ is, um, but then, of course, would also love you to get into Chain Gang All-Stars and, and why this is one of the 10 best. Sure. And, you know, MJ, we try not to talk too much about our editors so that they won't, <laughs> precisely so that they won't be lobbied, but MJ Franklin is is uh, a wonderful reader, one of our uh, preview editors, and, and he was so passionate about Chain Gang All-Stars uh, right from the beginning, as were many other editors on the desk. So, Chang Yang All-Stars, it's by Nana Kwame Ajebrenya. It's his first novel, although he wrote a debut short story collection in 2018 called Friday Black that um, several editors on the desk were also passionate about. It's essentially a dystopian satire. It's uh, a world in which 
death row inmates uh, fight to the death on TV for uh, a chance at freedom. And so it has, you know, very familiar antecedents, things we've read and, and, and seen on screen before, like The Running Man or The Long Walk by Stephen King or Battle Royale, The Hunger Games, uh, Squid Game, obviously, which, you know, is contemporaneous with this book. Um, but, but it is this, you know, it's a satire on the penal state in America, on the carceral state in America, on reality TV, on how Americans, you know, find entertainment in terrible things. Um, so it's all these things. It sort of, it, 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 it balances a lot of uh, satir- satirical targets. But it's also um, a love story in a way between the two top competitors uh, in this show, two women who are forced to, to try to choose between each other and freedom. Um, the fight scenes are amazingly done. The love story is amazingly done. It it balances a lot of different tones, and I think it succeeds at almost all of them. Yeah. So you say this is the debut novel. Um, Correct. Not I had a uh, short story collection, but but what impact does it have to make this list for you know a new author, right? Someone with their debut novel. I wonder about, or have you been told about the New York Times ten best lists commercial power or its ability to make a, a career? Sure, I I try not to think too much about it because uh, <laughs> <laughs> when when we're in this process every year, the the uh, I just cannot think about what effect it's gonna it's gonna have on an author or their commercial prospects. But you know, one of the wonderful things I think about. Uh, our list is that you go into a ton of independent bookstores and you'll see a little section at front that says the New York Times 10 best list and then those books will be right at the front of the store. I know that um, being on this list li- being on this list helps some authors and there are other authors um, who just get the honor but don't sell a ton of books because in the end of the day it's based on what is the book about. So if, if we put a heavy piece of nonfiction about something really sad, we think that belongs there. We think it's important, and we think that book should be read now, and it should be years from now. Mm. Will the average reader want to pick up that book? Um, who knows? But, uh, you know, we, we, we think about this all the time. What is now and what is going to last? Mm. Interesting. Well, this is writes, Good Night, Irene is a loving account of a lost piece of World War II history. Noelle on Discord writes, Naomi Klein's doppelganger captures the zeitgeist of our culture after COVID pandemic shocks. We're talking about your favorite books of the year. We're talking about the New York Times Book Review's 10 Best of the Year with Gilbert Cruz, editor of the Times Book Review. And we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the New York Times Book Review's Top 10 of the Year with Book Review Editor Gilbert Cruz, Times Book Review Editor Gilbert Cruz. And we're hearing your favorite books of the year. Tell us which was your favorite book and why, why you loved it, why it'll stay with you. Or tell us if you use the New York Times Book Review to select your next read. Do you have questions for Gilbert about the selection process or the inner workings of the New York Times Book Review? Maybe you're looking for a recommendation of something to read, maybe over the holidays or give as gifts. Feel free to also ask that as well. Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. Call us at 866-733-6786. Matoki on Discord writes, I'm currently loving J.B. Loftus's hilarious raw dog about American hot dogs, even as a vegetarian, especially as a vegetarian. Another listener writes, The Covenant of Water is a terrific book by Abraham Verghese. It depicts several generations, personal struggles with illnesses, mental and physical, and parents' dedication, adoptive and otherwise. It gives a fascinating glimpse into rural India in the 20th century. And Nancy writes, Let Us Descend by Jesmyn Ward is lyrical, poetic, and chilling. A first-person story of an enslaved person in the Old South. Gilbert, feel free if you want to comment about any of those last three books that I mentioned or not. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll touch very briefly on the the Covenant of Water. You know, this was Abraham Verghese's uh, first book since uh, Cutting for Stone, which was a big hit that came out in 2009. Um, you know, he is uh, a, a doctor as well as, as an author. And this is just one of those sprawling family sagas, you know, set in the past in another country that, 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 captures people's imaginations, partly because uh, the story is so compelling and partly because it, it is, again, uh, quite quite a large book. Um, you, you want to talk about the influence that the New York Times Book Review has. I think it's pretty influential, but you know who is influential? Oprah. And this was an <laughs> Oprah book club pick uh, this summer. And, you know, you look at places like the Oprah Book Club, uh, uh, Jenna's Book Club, all these sort of celebrity book clubs, and and they put so many books in front of so many people, which I think is all to the better. But this was a big Oprah book this summer. Well, this listener wants to know, is there ever a conflict of interest in editor recommendations? How do you keep that out? Uh, good question. I wonder, I wonder what this listener is asking precisely. I mean, you know... In terms of we're friends with an author? Well, or... or maybe you can talk about how a book is assigned for review, because I bet through that process, you also have sure. to make sure that there aren't any conflicts of interest. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have this, again, this group of editors, and each of these editors has has sort of a, a bucket of types of books that they uh, typically are interested in or are expert in. So we have an editor, because we're the New York Times, who does just intense, hardcore histories, hardcore history books, nonfiction books. We have someone who does narrative nonfiction and science. You know, there are all these different editors. But when we say we're going to review a book, we come up with a list of, I don't know, three, four, five, six authors, outside writers. If one of our staff critics does not review the book, then we go to an outside novelist, a historian, an academic, someone outside of the New York Times 
to review the book. Most of the reviews that the book review runs in any year uh, are by outside writers. And we go down that list and we reach out to people. Sometimes, more often than you would think, people say no because they're in the middle of writing their own books or what have you. Uh, but sometimes they say yes. And when they say yes, we have to do the very first thing. Are there any conflicts of interest? And what that means to us is, do you share the same editor? Do you share the same publishing house? Do you share the same agent? Are you friends with this person? Has this person blurbed one of your books? Is there any personal reason that you hold a grudge against this person? You know, you're on the college paper together in the past, and they and they undermine you in some way. Is there any reason that you can think of that your review of this book would be uh, unfair? And so we really try to go through that process, um, and, and and it's essential because publishing for as many books as are published over the course of the year is is still relatively small uh, of an industry. Well. Speaking of whether you're an expert in something, um, Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs by Carrie Howley. This seemed like you probably need a little bit of a sense of an understanding about national security, maybe, <laughs> to be able to say whether or not this book is amazing enough to be on the top 10 list. But can you tell us about that um, and and about why, why it made the list and, and what kind of sure. expertise maybe the person who really defended this book or wanted this book may have had? Sure. So, you know, the person that reviewed this book was our nonfiction critic. Her name is Jen Zalai. And so she she naturally, given her job, reads a lot of books about politics, a lot of books about yeah. technology, economics, what have you. And so, um, you know, she she stumped uh, a lot for this book. And and this is a book that's perhaps most difficult to describe, but it, it's the spine of the book is the story of Reality Winner, which is someone that many people are familiar with. You know, the reality is the NSA contractor who was convicted by the federal government for leaking classified information to uh, a journalistic outlet. So so that's the spine of the book. But Carrie Howley also writes about all these other people in this space, right? Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning. She writes about QAnon mm -hmm. and conspiracy theorists. It's, right. it's broadly about what some people, not everyone, what some people refer to as the deep state, the you know, and the national security apparatus. It's about privacy and digital surveillance. And she puts all that together in a way that is not straightforward. It's not, here's a chapter on Reality Winner. Here's a chapter on Julian Assange. It's uh, it's written and structured in a way that, that we all thought uh, approximated the ways in which digital life is, is, is atomized and confusing and contradictory. It's a stylish uh, attempt at trying to uh, make you understand what it feels like to live in a world in which um, you know privacy and digital surveillance is so uh, is so hard to get. Well, Martina on Discord writes, The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff was just beautiful, immersive, and surprising. I read her book Matrix last year and loved it. Reading these two back-to-back -back gives you a sense of Groff taking on big ideas of community, loneliness, our relationship with the natural world, womanhood, and history through two very different lenses, but they still resonate with each other. Gilbert, can I ask you about The, the Best Minds by Jonathan Rosen, maybe just because I'm thinking about relationship, but this one sounded like a really incredible and interesting way to portray a friendship. Sure. So Best Minds, Jonathan Rosen, you know, you don't see a ton of books out there about male friendship, which is one thing that we talked about. And and this book is about that. It's not what it's only about. It starts as a memoir. It tells the story of the author, Jonathan Rosen, and his friendship with a man named Michael Lauder. These two boys grew up in a suburb outside of New York City. Uh, their friendship lasted decades. Uh, Lauder 
at some point uh, was diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, but yet he became known for graduating law school following his diagnosis. His story was written about in a big profile in the New York Times. He got a book and a movie deal for his life story. And then unfortunately, um, it all went south and some really terrible things happened. I can see where they are. I'm not going to spoil it, even though I think it's literally on the book jacket. So um, <laughs> you you can find out. But the, the book gives its very detailed and intimate account of, of their friendship, of what it's like to grow up as a a young man in the in the in that time period, uh, but it also gives, boy, like these sweeping looks at America in the late '60s, the '70s, the '80s, and '90s, um, very specifically mm-hmm. uh, about how America has dealt with mental illness. And so, uh, it's beautifully written, and the author fits all of this stuff about American history, the American healthcare system, um, the counterculture, politics into this story about uh, friendship and a life. Yeah. You know, I saw some complaints in the comment section of your piece announcing the 10 best, or the Times Book Review piece announcing the 10 best, that there were not fun or light books on that list and that people need that because of the Times. I'm curious if you were aware of that. Is that a common complaint? Or, you know, do you think there's validity to that criticism? How do you respond to that? Uh, I, of course I'm aware of that complaint, um, and we get it because we're the New York Times and people think we're fuddy-duddies. Um, <laughs> I guess it depends on what you think fun is. I mean, you know, there are books on here that I feel like have narrative energy. I don't think all these books are depressing, if that's really what we're talking about. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know how to respond to that. Yeah. Do, are, should there be more fun books on here? I don't know. Well, I feel like... We don't need to tell you what the fun books are. We're trying to tell you what the great books are. And sometimes those two things overlap and intertwine. And when they do, it's amazing. And we hope that happens. But it doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. You know, that's actually a really good way of putting it. Um, And and it's true. Fun can mean a lot of... I bet the things I find fun, a lot of people do not find fun. Let me just put it that I mean, I feel like fun... Look, this is a this is a subjective process. You have a group of people here uh, that's very different from the groups of people that are making similar lists at at, at other uh, outlets, um, uh, and f- trying to figure out like what is good, what is great, yeah. what is going to last yeah. is hard enough. <laughs> trying to agree on what is fun for each of us is <laughs> that's I do not want to <laughs> I did not want to have that conversation with my staff when it comes to the best books of the year because I will tell you the. Um, you know, gory horror books that I read, I know that other members of the staff are not going to find fun. Mm, yes. Well, this is actually wants to know if there has ever been a sharp disagreement where it's close to 50-50 for and against. Can you share a particular instance of a book with lots of contention like that? That that's, That is that close, this listener wants to know. I absolutely cannot. Uh, I won't do that, even though that has happened uh, many times. I just I, it, it would be so terrible for an author to find out that they were one or two votes away <laughs> from, from getting on this list. But what I will say is that these those sorts of um, uh, discussions happen all the time. There's one editor on the desk who, uh, you know, once she saw in, in one of the last meetings the way the wind was turning, she you know said, um, I know the book that I'm advocating for is not going to make it. Um, and I will never get over it. So, <laughs> but we all know that there's, you know, next year and hopefully we'll, you know, various editors will be able to, to advocate uh, on those books behalf in future years. But look, 
we love books, and loving books means that um, when someone else doesn't love your book, you you get angry about it, maybe, or you get passionate about it, or there are some hurt feelings. But um, it'd be really weird if we were all um, emotion-free aliens who are just, you know, weighing books on the good scale. Yeah. Gilbert Cruz is editor of the New York Times Book Review, and let me remind you, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, you do have this um, episode in the podcast where you do let your editors talk about a book that didn't make the list that they defended. I'm wondering if you have a book that you want to share that you defended that did not make the list, that you advocated for that did not make this list. <laughs> Mina, I cannot do that. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot. I, so I you can't. make your editors do it, but you won't do it. <laughs> I. It's actually, you know, one of the 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 good things about my job is um is I'm guiding the process and and I'm trying not to put my thumb on the scale uh, at any point because I really feel uh, as a boss and as a manager that that would sway the conversation in a way that maybe it wasn't going to go if someone says, "Oh, Gilbert, you know, really loved this book. Maybe we should all move in that direction." I will weigh in when I want to, but I don't want anyone else on the book review to feel as if uh, I am leading the conversation one way or the other. I think in years past, the process, and I'm talking like decades ago, the process used to be, you know, really small groups of people, like three or four people in a room choosing these books. I'm trying to make it um, as open, transparent um, as possible for my group of of editors. You know, you want them to feel invested in the process. And so- I'm I'm not putting my thumb on the scale for any. Well, Steve writes, my favorite book this year was Translation State by Anne Leckie, the fifth installment in her science fiction series set in a massively built-out universe and a very satisfying read in itself. Like one of my other favorite authors, Ursula K. Le Guin, Leckie builds a lot of relevant cultural details into her novels, and unlike much of science fiction, her work is comparable to literary fiction in its structure and quality. I even got my mother a mystery novelist who generally avoids sci-fi to commit to reading much of Leckie's work so far. Uh, I'm curious if you notice um, or noticed any trends this past year of what readers or writers gravitated toward in terms of themes or subjects, you know, either from the types of books released or, or the bestsellers, right? What if Did sure. you notice something? I know it's hard, but... No, no. I mean, there are a few. You know, one of the the big bestsellers of the year was a book called uh, Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. Uh, the sequel to that book, Iron Flame, just came out. Um, and and this is um, these are books that take place uh, or they're located in a genre that has become known as romanticy. So it's romance, you know, fan- uh, meeting fantasy. It's it's about dragon riders, people that are riding dragons. So think of Game of Thrones. Um, that you know hate each other at the beginning and then eventually fall in love. I think that is how the book goes. And if it's not, don't tell me on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but that 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 book was one of the the big bestsellers uh, of the year. And I think you know various sectors of the publishing industry are going to try to you know as they do are going to try to figure out how to how to produce more more books in that vein. Something that we noticed throughout the year, but certainly. Uh, was huge in the fall was just celebrity memoirs. These are always big, but there was just there was a ton of them this year. Hmm. It started with Prince Harry's Spare at the beginning of the year, which I think remains one of the best-selling books of the year, despite the fact that it, you know, came out long ago. To the Britney Spears memoir, the Barbara Streisand memoir, the Jada Pinkett Smith memoir. Yeah. You know, following the the uh, unfortunate death of Matthew Perry, his book came back and hit the top of the bestseller list again. 
there were just a ton of celebrity memoirs. And, and the reason that publishers publish celebrity memoirs is because oftentimes those are the books whose sales underwrite all of the uh, other books that are, you know, worthy but will never sell in those numbers. Yeah. You said something earlier that made me think about the fact that you're, th- these lists are going to be around for years to come, right? And as long as there's been a New York Times book review, there's been, you know, sometimes you say three or four people in the room deciding, but there's been these annual lists of standouts, right? And I'm wondering if you have looked back at some of these 10 best lists or how often you do that, and if there are books on there that really have not aged well, <laughs> So, you know, if anyone is curious, any of your listeners are curious, we, we have an article up called The Ten Best Books Through Time. And we started um, narrowing uh, the, the final list of the year to 10 in 2004. Before that, you know, sometimes there would be four books on the list. Sometimes there would be 11 books on the list. But, you know, in 2004, we start doing 10. Anyone can go back and, and look at it and, and make their own decisions. I, I think there are definitely books that... Um, nobody reads anymore, but there are definitely books that, uh, even if I'm looking at the 2004 list, uh, almost 20 years ago, have stood the test of time. Gilead mm. by Marilyn Robinson, one of the most gorgeous books I've ever read. The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. Ron Chernow's Alexander Hamilton, the book that was made into the Broadway musical. Bob Dylan's Chronicles Volume 1. Um, I think even if on each of these lists there are one or two books where you say to yourself, what is that? I've never heard of that book. Um, there are more than one or two where you're like, yes, that is one of the great ones. Well, we have a few listeners who have shared books from from last year, I believe. So uh, this listener writes, my latest audiobook is Maya Rose Craig's Bird Girl, So Good. Another listener writes, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, just an exceptional novel about ambition and love and creativity and intimacy and video games. And another listener writes, I would put Sabrina Imler's How Far the Light Reaches on my best of list as an extraordinary blend of accessible science writing and memoir. Thank you so much, listeners, for sharing your picks for great reads uh, that either came from 20 23 or wants to read before 2023 ends or over the holidays. We really appreciate it. And my thanks to you, Gilbert Cruz, for coming on to to talk more deeply about the books that made the 10 best list and also to demystify to as much as you could allow yourself to the process uh, of how you go about selecting it. It was really illuminating. Mina, thanks so much for having me on. Gilbert Cruz is editor of the New York Times Book Review. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. And you have been listening to Forum. Have a great, have great reading ahead of you, listeners, and great listening. We're back tomorrow. So yeah, I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening as always. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.